Hi, I'm Trevor Elio. And I'm Julie Stern. And this is Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts to uncover the concepts and patterns that help us organize our world. From farming to fashion, we can understand any field through acquiring, organizing, and transferring conceptual relationships. We hope this podcast will inspire teachers and students to design creative solutions to complex problems and accelerate innovation in today's schools. If you're interested in our work, you can find out more at edtosavetheworld.com. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Crawford, co-founder of Edspace, a social learning network for educators. As someone with expertise and insight into the evolving nature of education, professional development, and educational technology, he was the perfect guest for our current moment. Our conversation touches on a wide variety of topics, from wellness to new models of professional learning to the power of autonomy for teachers and students. What makes Michael such a great thinker and voice in education is his ability to recognize the connective tissue between various emerging research and trends within education. It's at that convergence point, the idea of EdSpace emerged. Another angle to why we built EdSpace is because what we were hoping to begin to do is reimagine and, and kind of rebuild the way that teachers view what professional learning is. Professional development for many teachers has a, you know, puts a bad taste in their mouth. Professional learning for many teachers is a, is a, a more expansive kind of term. It's more, uh, you know, universal or, or sort of, um, uh, you know, it's the water that we're swimming in essentially. And so what we try to do with Edspace is begin to create that space where teachers, no matter when they wanted or where they were, whether they're you know in their car or on their couch or in their office, be able to plug into other educators who were wanting to learn and grow as well. And that could happen anytime. It didn't have to happen when, you know, when the principal said, oh, we have PD next week. There are a ton of great ideas and things to ponder about the future professional learning, teacher training and education in general during this episode. We hope you enjoy. Our guest this week is Michael Crawford, co-founder of Edspace, a social learning network for teachers where educators can come together, share thoughts, and talk about the things that matter to them. Great to have you, Michael. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So can you talk to us a little bit about uh, Edspace? Absolutely. So uh, a few years ago uh, in our past work with Real World Scholars that helps classrooms start and run businesses, we supported hundreds of teachers across the country. And one of the things we began to learn was that teachers were often frustrated uh, and, and disengaged from the work, uh, not because they didn't have, not that their hearts weren't in it, but because uh, the structure of school made, made it a bit tough. And so we began to see that among teachers we served, we kind of picked our heads up and looked around and it's the case for too many teachers uh, in this country and around the world. And as entrepreneurial folks, we wanted to, to do something about it. And so, hundreds of conversations, a bunch of miles traveled when, when that was okay to do, uh, and a ton of research around professional learning and, and teacher training. Uh, and we, we created a social network for teachers, uh, essentially a cross between Slack and Instagram stories, all for the world of education. So channels uh, within Edspace dedicated to topics of interest for, for teachers, project-based learning, socio-emotional learning, design thinking, things like that. Uh, channels around books that teachers read, podcasts that they listen to, uh, and we, uh, and then the Instagram story side is sort of video-based. So instead of a text-based forum where teachers go and, and type in the things that they're interested in, uh, it's video-based. So shot from their phone or from their computer, 
short videos, less than three minutes, where they can ask a question or reflect on a, a passage from a book uh, that they just read, really with the hope of uh, creating a space for teachers to be able to connect and discuss the things that they care about, which for too many teachers uh, around the world, it's, it's just not a common occurrence. And so uh, that's really what we built EdSpace for. Uh, we launched it officially in beta in February. And so, so we're on the move. It's been, it's been a wild ride. Yeah, I visited the website um, recently just because Trevor uh, asked you to be on our show. It looks really, really cool. I can't wait to explore it more. Um, and so when we asked Michael, what, what would you like to speak about? What would be your topic? Um, he, he basically said teachers, just sort of the, the everything teachers, everything related to teachers. Um, so do you mind uh, telling our, guests, our listeners what your three words are, your three concepts to sort of anchor our conversation? Absolutely. So uh, the three concepts that I'm interested in are teachers uh, as people and sort of the role of teachers. Mm -hmm. uh, the second one I'm interested in is around training and support. Uh, and then the third one that I'm interested in also is context, sort of the, the space that supports or challenges or the space where teachers actually do their work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's those are three really interesting concepts or words that you chose. So let's start with the first one with the role or teacher as a person. Um, what do you want to say about that? What, why would you choose that sort of as your first concept? Sure. I mean, I think I, I, I think about teachers as people, teachers as humans often. I mean, I think the, mm -hmm. the work that teachers have to do, the role that the roles that they play from you know, deliverer or distributor of content to uh, the creator of a, of a learning environment for young people to uh, you know, being sort of consultants on projects or consultants in ways that, that support students. I think oftentimes the, the, uh, the role of the teacher has been kind of historically brought forward as this, this expert who has a particular subject matter expertise, and it's their job to deliver content or deliver some of that expertise. And I think what we're hoping to see and what we're beginning to see in different places is that the role of the teacher is beginning to shift. It is now not the case that young people uh, in a room can't search on their own phone or when young people leave the school that they aren't immersed in a sea of information and that they need this expert at the front to be the one that really dictates or determines um, or delivers the, the particular information. And so I just think, you know, and I'd be curious to hear to hear your thoughts as educators. I, I just think that the way we think about <clears throat> the role of the teacher, it needs to change, uh, and it's not changing fast enough. Well, we don't think that at all, do we, Trevor? Um, <laughs> it's almost like you've read the introduction to our manuscripts uh, because <laughs> I wish I wish uh, that's that's pretty much what we say. You know, just the shifting role of, of the teacher because of our changing worlds. Um, and poor Trevor, he has to to hear stories of my my four and six year old all the time because I just I mean daily it is jaw dropping what these kids learn on their iPads, which they own now due to COVID. Sure. They did not each have their own iPad, <laughs> but now they do. Um, and for me to survive, they're on it more than I would like them to be. But yep. the things that they are learning, I can't, I mean, it's it's mind boggling. Yeah, it's, um, and it, it is something we need to talk more about the role of the shifting role of teacher for sure. No, I mean, the, the, the anecdotes are such a great way to capture at a very like personal level, the way that kids are interacting with the world is changing and you know the hearing hearing those stories and thinking about the different relationship that kids have with technology and information and knowledge 
um, really, I think, shows how badly those roles need to evolve. I think that um, one of the struggles is, and we actually were talking about this on a, on a um, call the other night, is so much, because teaching is such a, a personal uh, profession, we, we upload a lot of our sense of identity into our, our role in the classroom and within you know, the broader community. And I think that that's part of why it is hard for that to evolve, because not only are we thinking about the limiting systems and structures in place, but we're also thinking about the fact that you know, when people sign up to be a teacher, many of them think you know, they are that, the you know, expert in front of the room who, who disseminates the knowledge to the children. And like that is the type of, I guess, milieu that they were entering into. That's why they entered into the profession. So it really is a challenge, I think, to get teachers to consider. Um, and I think that maybe they feel like they don't have a role in, the, in the, that new paradigm. And I think that um, they definitely do. It's just different. It's, so it's figuring out how, how can we articulate what that role looks like. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a great point. The, the piece about uh, what it is that teachers see in teaching or what it is that people see in teaching that, that compels them to want to be teachers, right? And, and part of what I think about, and I've, I've had some conversations recently with folks about this is uh, what, you know, what incentives, what kind of uh, benefits come from being a teacher in addition to, of course, serving young people and, and being able to spend time with kids and, and nurture their growth and development. Uh, I think that plays a major part in, in why many teachers uh, become teachers. But also, what is it, what is the, the role of the teacher? How is it attracting folks who, who may not be, who, for whom that may not be the only reason why they want to do the work, right? If, if mm -hmm. what you think teaching is, is having content expertise or having subject matter expertise, standing at the front of the room and helping kids to learn that stuff, maybe that's a slice of the work, but it turns out that it isn't or it shouldn't be all of the work. And so if that's the case, how do we help other people, young people who want to be teachers or young people who are, are beginning to think about their futures, they want to make a difference um, and teaching is an option. But if all they think teaching is, is the person standing at the front delivering the information that might not be an attractive, uh, an attractive role for, for more people, right? So I'm, I'm trying to, I'm very interested in, in that piece of it. And also, you know, I think oftentimes we, uh, you know, this kind of leads into my, my second topic around training and support, but I think oftentimes we see teachers, uh, it might sound odd, but sort of only as professionals and we fail to, to really consider them as full human beings. And Trevor, you touched on identity mm -hmm. a bit, mm -hmm. um, but you know, teachers, the, the kind of support that they, had been, they have been given for the most part has been very um, kind of pedagogical, very uh, professional is the, the only word that I can think of at the moment, very sort of focused on the tasks and the, the work at hand, mm -hmm. as opposed to actually supporting a fuller human development, which then allows a teacher to be able to step into the room and interact with young people in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so I think about sort of the humanity, the, the person-ness of teachers that I think, you know, there's, in my opinion, not enough conversation about that. Especially now. I mean, I think now there is because there has to be, but probably not enough, I would say. Um, you know, I, obviously, as soon as COVID hit, tons of, of webinars on well-being, trauma, things like that, um, the stress, the workload. So all, I'm seeing sort of across the world, a lot of the quote unquote keynotes for faculty um, orientations and things like that are, are around teacher well-being. Um, 
whether or not they're effective, that's a whole other conversation. That's a whole other podcast, but at least we're talking about it. At least we're, you know, we're, we're saying, gosh, what we're putting on teachers right now is, is insane. And it was actually my father, my 70 year old father who pointed this out because we were in, we were sort of uh, (laughs) evacuees from our home in, in Dominican Republic and we were staying with my parents. And so he, he was watching his grandkids go through this. And he says, those poor teachers, they are in the living rooms with parents watching them teach all day. And, you know, he was the one who was like, oh my God. Um, and, you know, it really, it so true. And when I did parent teacher conference as a parent, I could see the disparate uh, desires of parents that this teacher had to deal with. Like some, some like me wanted less, less synchronous time, more time for my kids to be outside, more time for my kids to be learning with me sort of guiding them than on the computer. But you saw there were parents who wanted the polar opposite. They wanted their kids sitting there the whole time. And every, every teacher that I talked to says they have parents across the spectrum with that. Um, And so, you know, what do we do about teacher well-being and the teacher as a person, what are your thoughts on that in this moment in time? Yeah, I mean, I, it's a, again, a really important question and conversation. And, and just to, to echo um, some of what you shared about the, the demands that are on teachers, not only from the, the technology side of things, whether they're teaching virtual mm-hmm. or in the classroom with mm-hmm. students sort of zooming in, uh, which is, has to be a wild experience. I haven't, I haven't Trevor's in the midst of that, actually. That, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hybrid. It's, <laughs> yeah, right. it's something. It's something. Yeah, right. right. Um, but, uh, but the, the, I think the reason that that is such a wellness, health, well-being, to me, feels much more of an important topic these days, obviously, is that teachers are, are being forced to adapt in ways that many of them, you know, it, there's, the research out there shows that teachers tend to say that their training doesn't necessarily do a great job of equipping them for what the actual classroom looks like. And I have not seen the data as of, you know, six months ish ago, eight months, nine months ago, that shows, well, what kind of training could possibly have equipped educators to be able to navigate the current circumstance, whether it is hybrid or whether you are now teaching completely virtual. You know, I have a, a first grader. And so I am one of those parents kind of every once in a while floating in the background and listening to how she is interacting uh, how the his teacher is interacting with him uh, and her and his class and it is um, I, she's doing an amazing job I think but also I would imagine there are other parents who similar to what you were describing are like well you know my kid only has three Zoom meetings for three hours a day these other ex, you know five hours or four hours they're not sitting and doing their work in front of a teacher where they're getting instruction and so um, so anyway all, all of this is to say I, the teachers that teachers who are having to navigate this incredibly challenging time, we need to think about certainly how do they engage pedagogically with, with students in this new way, but also what toll is this taking on teachers' physical well-being, mental health? I mean, it doesn't take long to take a breeze through Twitter and see. Yeah, it ain't good. <laughs> the teachers jumping on there, right, and just sharing, you know, struggles. Sure. Yeah, so I, it just, it, I think it is a topic that he should have gained more attention probably forever, but especially now, mm-hmm. um, teacher mental health, teacher well-being, uh, you know, relationships with, with people, peers and other folks around them. I think it just feels really important. 
Um, let's, if you don't mind, let's put let's put sort of the current situation aside for a second, and I'd be curious. So you talked about humanity, uh, which so many of our podcast guests have have used that word, which and to now it's becoming one of my favorite words. <laughs> um, thanks, really, to conceptually speaking, um, and and wonderful guests like you all, and and. You also use the word uh, consultants, which Yang Zhao was our, our guest who spoke mostly about the student. He really wanted to speak about, about from the student's perspective. Uh, so it's cool to have you on sort of provide the compliment of like focusing on the teacher. Um, and he used the word consultant as well, uh, sort of like, you know, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because Trevor Knights, we go back and forth, curator, designer, you know, what, what is it? If it's not sort of information provider, what is the yeah. role? Yeah, I mean, so consultant to me, when I think of teacher as consultant, uh, I think it does tie into to what Yang Zhao uh, was referring to or what he was focused on around student driven, student determined, um, based on student interests, student passions, things like that. Um, and, and when I think of teacher as consultant, I think of teacher as bringing their own expertise, bringing their own human to the table, their own interests and their own skills and when a young person has their own interests and they're trying to, to pursue it or explore it, what are the ways that teachers are supporting that journey? Teachers are not, as consultants, uh, and, and perhaps I should have said coach, uh, quick sidebar, a friend of mine is a, a performance psychologist and, a, and now a recently certified coach. And I just was made aware of the distinction between a coach and a consultant. And so a coach is somebody who uh, doesn't necessarily have the answers, but kind of provides questions that allow the athlete or the executive or the student to be able to kind of chart their own course. A consultant comes in with a bit more expertise and takes a look at a circumstance and says, hey, you should do ABC, right? So I, I probably could have used the word coach uh, instead, of, in, instead of consultant here, but um, nevertheless, my, the way that I think about it is the teacher as a support for the student's interest. A teacher providing questions, a teacher providing uh, sometimes some insights, a teacher, a teacher helping the student to make connections between where they are now, where they wanna go, between connections between different ideas or topics, connections between themselves and perhaps professionals out in the community that they could, they could uh, build that bridge between. Um, and so I see this consultant as sort of this um, not necessarily a sidekick. I don't know what other metaphor I want to use, but uh, you know, as as as, a, as that kind of secondary support person, where the student is driving, and the and the teacher. Here we go for a metaphor. The teacher is sort of the you know is holding the map and helping the person, helping the student kind of figure out where to go. That's kind of what I think about. And so something I guess tying some of those uh, threads together. What that makes me think of is what does teacher training look like. In that paradigm, um, what if we are going to think about what what knowledge do teachers need in order to be able to do that? Um, because I think that uh, you know mindsets and habits of mind and you know skills are important, but like what type of thinking, what type of knowledge, what type of understanding do teachers need in order to be able to do that effectively? Um, like somebody who knows a lot of stuff across a bunch of different fields maybe can connect things more easily. So is, maybe it's create a teacher training that provides a breadth of knowledge as opposed to just a depth of knowledge. Um, I don't know, I'm just kind of, uh, uh, one of the, uh, the guests on the podcast, Adam Hansen talks about being pie shaped um, in terms of like the, like the numerical, like you know, having a broad base of knowledge, but a few areas where you can go um, really deep. And that's something that I found 
Interesting. So, so how do you think um, teacher training, either like at like at a university level or more like as a support professional level, how could and what could uh, education training look like to better help that? Yeah, really great question. I, I think so. The a couple of things come to mind for me. One, I think about the way that graduate school is structured, um, and so uh, and by that I mean. Uh, you know, certainly some classes, some foundational requirements in terms of just knowledge um, acquisition. But then, you know, in graduate school, uh, for the most part, it is much more student-driven. It's much more self-directed as a as a graduate student. So you're you are able to join uh, different research projects. You're able to to teach, sort of dabble over here. You're able to take your own interests and turn them into research projects, papers, presentations. Uh, you're able to partner with um, other students at, on your campus or elsewhere. You're able to work cross-disciplinary uh, and cross-disciplinary or interdepartmental ways working with, you know, if you're in the psychology department, you can work with somebody in the sociology department and somebody in the econ department to put a project together. And so when I think about how that could apply to teacher training, I think it could be much more um, self-directed on the teacher side where they're, instead of, instead of just being kind of in classes that are that are required and having a little bit of um, maybe there's some shadow opportunities and then ultimately maybe some student teaching opportunities. You know, imagine a teacher being able to generate their own projects and their own interests within the teacher education pro process. So it could be going to schools and interviewing students, or it could be mm -hmm. shadowing leaders at multiple schools within a district to try to better understand what that looks like. Um, and so I think about it kind of in that way, a little bit more modular, a little bit more self-directed. Um, and then the other thing, the other thing that um, that comes to mind for me is is kind of touching on what uh, what you said around um, the pie shape. And at first, I thought you meant kind of the wedge, and I was like, oh, that's an interesting shape as opposed to the <laughs> the, the symbol. Yeah, I was thinking like the food pie, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's the shape um, I've been I'll, cultivating the last I'll, few months with all the I'll, pizza I've been eating. Yeah. That's right. There you go. That's perfect. Um, but no, no. So I uh, I was thinking about you know. My wife uh, was a teacher. My both my parents were public school educators, uh, retired now. And so, the, I what I know is that they, when they wanted to be teachers, they were sort of put on the teacher track. They, you know, mm -hmm. it, it required them to, to attend a bunch of classes in the education department uh, or the school of ed. Maybe they had uh, some. I think all three of them probably, and maybe this is standard, uh, have the ability to get a minor outside of their teaching major. Mm -hmm. um, but otherwise there wasn't a lot of flexibility for them to be able to go and dabble in uh, many other subjects because the requirements to be a teacher were so high that they had to take all of these teaching courses. And on the one hand, that makes sense. You know, there's a lot to learn and a lot to, you know, in order to be a successful, effective, quote, effective teacher, there's a lot that one needs to know and be able to do perhaps. Um, but also if the future is the teacher as consultant or teacher as coach, Trevor, to your point, somebody who has other life experiences beyond the school path is somebody who can draw upon, all, you know, from other domains, other professions, other other um, activities that they've participated in. And so, I, to kind of answer your question with another question, what you know, what kind of structure, what kinds of experiences would allow somebody who wanted to be a teacher to be able to get those experiences elsewhere? Um, so I. I you know, that was a part partial answer and a partial wondering, mm -hmm. I think. Um, so yeah, I think that's where I'm at. It, it almost sounds like 
uh, maybe I'm just inferring here, but what we want teachers to, to do for their students, we now need professors to do for teacher ed mm, programs, which is totally. which is somewhat to be to be somewhat of a, a curator and a and a consultant and cog we I love yeah. to use the word cognitive coach um, of of students. Just what are they thinking? What do they understand? What do they misunderstand? Um, and in that way, it's a little bit more of the no, no knowledgeable other um, sort of cognitive apprenticeship is often another word oh, that nice. we like to use, yeah. um, which is sort of like you you kids can find information, um, but it's sort of putting it all together is is a true educated mind. And so teachers, uh-huh. you know, then helping students to put it all together because if they just watch YouTube videos, then they might know a bunch of stuff, but might not necessarily be sure. organized yeah. Yeah. in their brains. And I think I think the other thing that you got me thinking about as you say that is, you know, and this may be jumping a little outside of, of this particular topic, but this idea that what we hope, you know, young people or students begin to uh, think or develop or be like, or the kind of skills that we hope that they, they uh, bring into their world, it, it is often uh, completely antithetical to the structure that it's being provided them to, right? So for example, we want, we, this is maybe a broad statement, but we hope young people are creative. We hope they're collaborative. We hope they are self-directed. We hope that they are uh, able to um, make connections between different topics. We hope that they're able to sort of pursue things when things get challenging and, and persevere through it. Um, we hope that they're able to self-reflect and self-assess and get a better handle on who they are and what they're interested, etc. And yet the structure of the schooling that they're part of doesn't necessarily align with that. And I think the it, this also uh, transfers or we can also begin to think about it from the teacher prep perspective. If the hope is for teachers to be able to get into classrooms, support young people in new and different ways, try technologies, maybe try to run some micro experiments in their classroom and see how it goes. Um, If we hope for them to be a certain way in a 21st century classroom, and yet the training tends to look like 20th or 19th or 18th century classrooms, then it's a different, you know, then, then it's, it is, we should not expect, we should not expect young people to be able to emerge from a highly authoritarian space and be able to think in sort of democratic ways if they hadn't had opportunities to do that. And similarly, I would argue that teachers not having the ability or not having the practice in this kind of self-directed, being coached, being advised kind of way, we shouldn't expect them to be able to then flip the switch and be able to do that in classrooms. So I, mm. I yeah, so I think that is where, um, you know, that's why I think there's sort of a graduate school model that has this freedom, this flexibility, this pursuit of your own interests, collaboration, that if that were more of a model in, in teacher prep, then when teachers got into schools, they would feel a little bit more comfortable or empowered to begin to kind of lean into their own interests, build relationships and coalitions, be creative, those kinds of things that I don't, I think teachers, they are, they try to do that, but they're, they're trying to do that without as much practice and in a kind of constrained space. And, and it's like um, thinking about that, even a teacher who learns about those more democratic or flexible models, it's like it's an analytical or theoretical way of knowing as opposed to an experiential one. 
they can like they they've had somebody lecture them about you know the power of project-based learning but yeah. maybe they've never had that opportunity to actually experience that that structure that that methodology that they're trying to employ so i think that that's very interesting that we as educators have a tendency to sort of replicate or perpetuate the models of education that we've been through and if we have never have the, had the opportunity to experience the type of schooling we want for our students uh, how challenging is it for us to do that even if we've read the book on it and that um, in teaching to uh, transgress bell hooks talks about people who you know their entire course was around like uh, uh, freedom and, and democracy and sort of like uh, giving people opportunity to have autonomy um, but the way that they teach it is incredibly authoritarian so it's like they're, they're being lectured about the power of, of you know sort of democratic structures in a classroom um, it's like their, their pedagogy doesn't align with their um, like what they're preaching so yeah. I mean, and that, and that is not, uh, you know, uncommon in lots of ways, right? I mean, I, I, I was in a webinar the other day and, and an iCivics webinar, shout out to iCivics. Uh, and one of the questions, uh, they were talking about students and citizenship and voting, um, and then what, you know, how teachers can support students in this, in this day and age now. Uh, and one of the questions I asked was around that very thing, which is how can we expect young people to emerge from a from an authoritarian, you know, kind of anti-democratic space and be fully democratic participants in this society. And I think that kind of thinking applies to in a lot of different places. It applies to kind of the structure of school and then the emergence of hopefully citizens of some kind. I think it also applies to, uh, you know, my background is in is in youth development and adolescent development in particular. And so, you know, the ways in which we treat adolescents as older children, as opposed to young adults has consequences. Mm -hmm. And so when, when mm -hmm. teens don't have the ability to exercise more adult-like decision-making uh, chances and, and muscles, uh, when they don't have opportunities to give and get feedback, when they, you know, a lot of these things that we hope, uh, you know, as, quote, successful adults, they may need to exercise. If they don't have those muscles built as younger people, um, or they haven't begun to flex them in any kind of way, then we, there's no reason we should expect them to be able to, to use them effectively later. And again, it applies, I think, to teacher training and teacher pedagogy in the classroom. I think it applies to teachers interacting with students and students then going to navigate. I think there's a few, you know, there's a handful of different places where that kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the anti-X teaching of X, if you will, um, mm -hmm. that is problematic. And indeed from leaders to teachers as well. I mean, we're seeing this is one of the things we're seeing with, with this whole situation is you can tell the schools where there's a high amount of trust of between teacher and leader, between teacher and parents and leader and parents and where there's not. Um, and you can tell where teachers are more miserable. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. Um, when, when it's sort of like a big brother over the teachers to make sure they're doing their jobs. Um, versus, hey, this sucks. <laughs> we know you're all in varying uh, degrees of, of difficulty and and let's get through this together. I see leaders who say it just like that. Um, and there's, you know, the teacher's well-being is certainly impacted by that for sure. Yeah. And it's um, like many things with the pandemic, it's it's more shown a light on things that were, were there um, than it being completely new. Because uh, I, I feel like, 
the conversation around, you know, teachers, uh, it's, it's your role to um, burn yourself out and to relight a, a child's fire. And it's like the entire discourse around what teachers do is basically murder themselves and sublimate their identity into um, everybody else to the point where it's unsustainable. And that's something that has been in the water for a long time for systemic reasons. I think for gendered reasons, you could, there are a whole bunch of aspects as to why, but now, you know, that's, that's, it's asking teachers to in certain districts and certain schools like risk their lives because that is just your role as a teacher like you were there for the child um and it doesn't really allow an opportunity to cultivate um like a a fullness or ripeness of self that i think teachers need to actually be able to be of service to their students for sure i mean i think it's 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 what they need and i also think you know as uh it's it's what they deserve right (laughs) we Hmm. we we hopefully are treating uh you know all professionals as as humans you know all workers all people all humans as humans i think that is a that's not a controversial thing to say um (laughs) i i also think especially for teachers you know one of the things that we talk about often is you know teachers are doing one of the most difficult jobs on the planet uh and they are treated as though uh they're that the work that they're doing is of much less consequence right i mean young people are teachers are taken care of and educating and nourishing and supporting that's right you know the most prized possession quote possession that most you know people can have and yet Mm -hmm. they're treated in a way that you would expect them to be you know just like i don't know build you know I don't even know, cutting down, you can't even cut down, filling holes with dirt. Like, I don't, I don't even know what the right way to think about that is. Um, and then Trevor, something you said, I think uh, like a really great way of, uh, or powerful phrase is this idea of like, we expect teachers to burn out as they are lighting the fires of, of, of students, right? It's, it's, this, it's this sort of zero sum kind of game. Like, look, if you are not at the max and out of gas, then you probably didn't do what was necessary for students. And that is not, that is not sustainable. That's not sustainable for the individual. And it's not sustainable for a profession or a system, and especially one that is as valuable as the broader education apparatus. Like it just, it's, it seems so silly, I think. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. Um, when, when we're talking about training your second bucket there, um, I'm wondering, so, Yes, the, the, the holy grail is sort of teacher prep programs. Um, more of the space that I think all three of us operate in is sort of ongoing professional development, not only for, for teachers, but for ourselves. Um, and so what, what do you think, um, can you talk a little bit about sort of on, after we graduated from college and we're, we're in the job, what, is, what are some ways we can continue to grow and, and be adaptable? Sure, I think about this in a, from a couple different perspectives. Um, I think the current, structure tends to be uh, one where, you know, the teachers are, are kind of doing their, their work and every so often they are invited or required to attend a professional learning that was kind of outside in, that somebody from the outside tends to come in. Um, oftentimes it looks like the, you know, lecture kind of stage on stage sort of situation. Um, and it, teachers generally report that these are not very helpful for them. They often report that they're one size fits all. They often report that they're irrelevant. Really, the teachers are there in this current context. They're there to kind of check a box 
and make sure that that they you know that their leadership knows that they were there and they can move along. Um, and so there's a, just a complete mismatch between what teachers need and want and what teachers actually get. Um, and so I think part of the issue is the is the structure of of the way professional development is provided. It's this sort of punctuated you know a few times a year or you know depending on where you um, are teaching could be a couple times uh, you know every month or so um, and I think it that mode of professional learning is partly to blame not only the particulars of what's actually happening in those workshops but just this idea of like you know every however many weeks somebody's going to come in and teach us and that's when we do get our learning and then we go back to our work I think the for me, the, the more powerful um, shift that needs to take place is a shift towards seeing the work itself as a, an incredible learning opportunity that we can begin to mine the work itself for learning nuggets and make that an ongoing process. So it isn't just once a month or once a quarter or whatever where the learning happens. Instead, it is this ongoing experience. Part of the reason why we build EdSpace was to help teachers be able to connect uh, you know, across the world around things that they're interested in. Another angle to why we built Unspace is because we, what we were hoping to begin to do is reimagine and, and kind of rebuild the way that teachers view what professional learning is. Professional development for many teachers has a, you know, puts a bad taste in their mouth. Professional learning for many teachers is a, is a, a more expansive kind of term. It's more, uh, you know, universal or, or sort of, um, uh, you know, it's the water that we're swimming in, essentially. And so what we try to do with Edspace is begin to create that space where teachers, no matter when they wanted or where they were, whether they're, you know, in their car or on their couch or in their office, be able to plug into other educators who were wanting to learn and grow as well. And that could happen anytime. It didn't have to happen when, you know, when the principal said, oh, we have PD next week. So I think all, all this is to say, for me, it is a, it's a shift in the way that teachers are seeing what PD and professional learning can look like. It's a shift in the way that leaders are imagining how they support their people. Um, and it's a shift, in my opinion, uh, in the way that the, the, the industry or the profession approaches professional learning from this sort of punctuated to a much more continuous experience. Yeah, and there's, um, there's uh, some research that I've been uh, looking at recently by um, Etienne Wenger around this idea of communities of practice, which is sort of like these kind of self-organizing uh, bodies of people that get together around a shared interest or, or bond and sort of are tracking each other's progress and, and learning together. And uh, when you think about the way that like schools are organized now, like when you are um, like with the, your, your, your grade level, right? Your grade level is, is anchored to your building and you're, you're anchored to your discipline and then you're anchored maybe to your grade level team. And there aren't these organic places where people can kind of meet and find shared interests. Um, and one of the things that's been really cool um, on the courses that we've been doing um, is that there are teachers from all over the world who are all interested in, you know, like what, what is learning transfer? How can I better incorporate into my classroom? And they all have such different perspectives, but they're sort of unified by this idea of, well, how can I teach for transfer better? And um, those sort of self-organizing where people have a shared interest and they're able to use each other as a resource and track each other's growth, um, as opposed to just only existing within the, the limiting organizing structures of school, I think is a really interesting way to, it's kind of imagine that professional learning experience as opposed to the professional development experience. I like that. 
Yeah, I, I, that, I, I think that distinction can help uh, kind of set us in a, a healthier direction, right? I think even though, you know, there is development and learning are not necessarily the same thing. Learning oftentimes is a, is sort of a, uh, a component of development, but I think professional development PD as a term, capital P, capital D has gotten, uh, is, a, is a tough term oftentimes for teachers to, to embrace. And so um, I think, and also PD has tended to be again, these sort of punctuated sporadic delivery of, of external content. So it just has a, it has a bad feeling, I think oftentimes for most teachers, whereas professional learning is a different kind of feeling. It feels um, more, again, universal. I mean, I think to your point about communities of practice and you know, some of the, the ways that you described it there uh, and from my understanding of, of what they are, you know, the, the self-directed nature of it is important. The self-selected mm -hmm. nature of it is important where you can begin to choose and, and determine who it is that you wanna learn with and from, what it, is, what it is that you all are actually talking about. Is it, you know, is the expectation that we show up once a week and we did the reading for that week and we talk about it and we discuss, is it the expectation that, you know, somebody, puts forth a problem or a challenge that they're working on and the rest of the community is actually working with them to help them kind of navigate through it. I think there's a lot of opportunity there that, again, oftentimes adults are not, um, you know, adult learning, there's a, a whole science and a whole universe around it. And yet very infrequently, we actually apply it to teachers uh, as sort of professional folks and, and, and learners. And so, um, yeah, I, communities of practice, I think, is, is a great uh, approach to it. I think, you know, again, whether it's a platform like Twitter or a platform like EdSpace, where, you, where the teacher can get in there and find the niche, the, you know, the crew, the, the vibration that makes sense for them and, and their needs at that time. That is, the, I think, the direction that we need to begin going. And, and uh, Julie, to your point around trust, I mean, that is in a great way to communicate trust as a leader to... Mm -hmm to say, hey, teacher, I don't know exactly what you need to learn, but I bet you have some sense. So I mm -hmm. wanna help you, I trust you to make decisions around your learning and around your professional path. Um, I'm here to help and support you, but it, you, know, you know what's best for you, you know what's best for your, your students, more or less. Um, and so let's, let's put that practice into place. Mm. I see that happening more and more, I, I think, across schools, in, in, especially in the United States, there's just more sort of choose, choose your own adventure professional learning and um, a lot more options and choice and differentiated learning. I mean, even with us, with our team, they, you know, we, we've been asked by, by school leaders to say, can you offer us a couple different sessions and people can choose? Mm -hmm. um, that's been one positive benefit that's come of all of this is that everybody's pretty much on Zoom um, when it comes to professional learning. So we can all, we don't have, I used to fly a lot, um, but now I'm, I'm, I'm at home. And so I just, you know, beam Trevor in uh, and he'll lead a session and, and, you know, I'll lead a different session. And I think I'm seeing that now. And it seems like we're getting into your last um, word, which is space, a place or, or space structure of schooling. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what, what that word means to you? Why did you choose it? Yeah, and we talked on it a little bit earlier, um, you know, in, in terms of authoritarian kind of structure to, com, you know, compared to a de more democratic structure, we can think about it in terms of, uh, you know, sort of top down, uh, externally determined versus a much more ground up, more organic. So when I think of the, you know, the space of a school or a classroom, 
uh, and especially from um, from a teacher's perspective, you know, teachers are often doing their work in their, I guess, pre-COVID, maybe we can talk, in their classroom, kind of by themselves with little opportunity often to be able to collaborate with other uh, other adults in the building. They, there's not lots of chances for them to see them. Um, and this sort of siloed, disconnected kind of experience then, I would argue, has implications for the kinds of learning experiences that can take place. And I think it also translates, or, you know, if we think about the, the, um, the virtual experience, you know, if it is still this kind of, the expectation is that the teacher is the one in the driver's seat, that the teacher is the one that has all the expertise, knowledge, et cetera, then it's a different kind of experience for young people. Um, so I, I, you know, oftentimes we think about uh, context or kind of the structure of a room. I think, you know, as teachers uh, would imagine, you know, if you set your classroom up in rows, versus in a circle, versus in groups, right? There's, there's a, a necessary difference between the ways in which young people interact in all, in all three of those spaces. And so when I sort of translate that to the adult context and I think about teachers, you know, what are the structures? What are the, the limitations that are placed on them and how does that impact? Uh, how does that impact their teaching, their learning, their sense of self? Um, so those are, you know, some of the things that um, that I think about in terms of context, in terms of place. You know, it's obviously a little different with with COVID. Now, place is sort of it's a it's a you know whether it's a hybrid or a virtual kind of place. Um, but I think it's still important to think about. Yeah, I've been having such a hard time with that in my classroom because the desks are all set up in rows for you know social distancing reasons. Right. Um, and then I have half the kids on Zoom, and um, all the teachers we all rotate rooms because it's less bodies moving in the hallways. And I've really, thinking on it now, I've really lost that sense of space that I was able to sort of cultivate in previous classrooms. And yeah. being able to play with like the, the structure, architectonics of like, where are the desks? And like, you know, when, when you have Socratic seminar, the room is in a circle. Um, yeah. And like, what, what message is that putting out to the students that enter that classroom? Mm -hmm. um, or if the, they're in rows. And, and I really started playing with the idea um, uh, I guess I guess it was, it was mostly last year of like when my students enter their room, what does the way the desks are arranged? Like, what does that say to them? And it's it's yeah. not like rows are always best or or flex seating is always best. So I'm thinking, what what purpose do I have for this learning experience, and what structure of the room will accommodate that most effectively? And um, right. losing that has definitely been challenging, um, especially because I'm you know trying to. Um, cultivate a sense of community for the, those at home, those in person, and they switch, and I'm in someone else's room. So it's like, it's yeah. very much like, I just sort of feel like I'm just like bit bopping, skipping around to all these different places yeah. um, and losing that sense of, of space. Um, I guess I'm just kind of, I guess I would be curious, like what the, what the effects are and, and what that sort of does to learning experiences. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, it, it, tying this question into something that I, I think about often is, um, this idea of the hidden curriculum, right? And so, you know, it, it, you know, what is sort of the the hidden learnings, what the, the hidden embodiments of the things that are part of the school experience? What are young people taking with them from this experience? In addition to the particular content or the curriculum itself, what are the, the hidden, the the unseen, the the kind of subtle or um, I don't know, I guess invisible, I guess, uh, things that they're learning from this from this um, from this moment uh, or just from their, their schooling experience. Uh, and so again, thinking about thinking about teachers, you know, the ways that teachers have been trained and supported, the expectations that teachers have, whether it's around 
you know, things as kind of structural as class periods, right? What are the, if you, if there are class periods versus just, you know, an eight hour day and you can navigate learning in different ways in that eight hour day, that has different implications for not only learning, but also for what young people, how they see themselves, what their own self-determined expectations are. I think there are a lot of consequences to, uh, to this both seen and unseen. So I, I don't know, it's, it, you know, I don't necessarily have, have, answers to those questions, but I think, I, I just think it's, it's a, something very valuable and very important for us to think about um, that we don't often think about. Yeah, and that um, one of the sort of like design principles that Julie has brought to all the work and, and that we talked about with, with the book is this idea of freedom within structure and the implications of going too far one way or too far the other way. And just, just the other day, we were talking about the way that teachers structure their, uh, my, my district has Schoology. Um, and like how we structure our, our, our learning. And, you know, it's great because teachers have freedom to come up with whatever structure organizing model works best. But then there are some students um, who understandably struggle because you have eight different teachers with their Schoology set up eight different ways. Yeah. And when somebody brought that up, I was like, oh man, like, you know, it's great because there, there's, there's yeah. this freedom that teachers have, but then without that structure, that's, it's really challenging. I mean, I'd say it's challenging for most students, but if you know how you have a student who's troubles with executive functioning, sure. um, like it, it's like the executive functioning Olympics because you're having to understand 18 different, you know, structures of a classroom. So yeah. finding that balance, I feel like is so tricky. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a great point. And, you know, it has me thinking about uh, essentially, you know, whose priorities matter or whose you know, it, it, what kinds of outcomes or output are we, are we hoping to see, right? So in that, in that circumstance, teachers have a bit more freedom and flexibility. They maybe are being trusted by leadership to be able to create their Schoology experience for, you know, however they want, which on the one hand sounds great. I, I would imagine teachers as the individual teacher, you probably prefer that because you get to, to arrange it how you want. And then there are benefits to that. Um, at the same time, when we, if we looked at, you know, if the unit of analysis was the young person, it means then that the young person's experience is a bit more uh, complicated, perhaps it's a bit more confusing. Um, and so, you know, one reaction to that would be to say, okay, teachers, forget it. This is the one way that we're going to do it because what we care most about is student, you know, reducing student confusion and frustration, right? That's the most important thing. So we're going to tweak this one piece of the puzzle. We're going to make everything standardized in Schoology and then students won't have the, uh, the, the confusion, right? And in, in one way, it could solve it. Teachers or students might be less confused, but at what cost, mm -hmm. right? So at mm -hmm. what cost to teachers and trust and autonomy and also at what cost to student learning when, you know, Trevor, the, the Schoology structure that you provide is, could be incredible for student learning um, and yet, the students aren't going to have a chance to interact with your creativity and your unique brilliance and the rest of their teachers either because the, the priority was to reduce confusion and frustration and students in how they interact with Schoology until everything else changes, right? So I think about like, you know, as a leader of a school or as a, a teacher who's sort of a, a leader of sorts of a classroom, what kinds of decisions are we making and for, you know, to what end and for, in, in terms of whose priorities? Uh, and I, again, not, not necessarily saying I have the answers to those, but it, but thinking about it in that way, I think helps us to think about the kind of structures, the physical space, the, the technology that we choose, the tools that we choose um, to use, because they all have these sort of visible and 
hidden impacts. Mm -hmm. And I think we're, we're speaking to the fact that the world is enormously complex. Another one of, of my, my, um, my little adages, the world is enormously complex. And so we have to sort of constantly revisit once new information comes to light. Um, you know, I, I laughed at what a teacher recently, we were in a teacher training and he said, you know, three years ago, you told us to write the essential questions like this. And now you're telling us to write the question, essential questions like this. It's always changing. And I'm thinking, dude, in three years, oh. all they've done is ask you to rewrite the essential questions. Like you're, you're doing pretty good. Um, this, <laughs> right. this is welcome to 2020. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, in some ways it's sort of like, how do we, um, build this culture where it doesn't feel like we're always overhauling, or as Trevor says, the pendulum swinging from left to right, left to right, left to right, but that yeah. uh, we are keeping some core sort of values intact, some core goals intact, and that we're, we're looking at the situation from multiple angles and with, with multiple sort of data points um, and, and making collaborative decision-making. I feel like that's, that's, seems to me to be sort of the only way forward is 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 collaborative decision decision making because yeah. uh not no one person holds all of all of the pieces of information uh, and sort of helping that that might might be something that uh we need to start talking about principal training as well we don't have time that'd be a whole other podcast okay. um, <laughs> yeah but yeah I, I, just real quick to, to jump on some of that i mean i i appreciate also your the usage of the word complex here as opposed to complicated, for example. So, you know, complicated is building a rocket ship, like this button goes here and this wire goes here. And, and there's a ton of things, a million parts, but they all have a particular spot. And when you push one button, you know what's going to happen. Complex is mm -hmm. not the case. You push in on one side and it, one part jumps out over here and you push in on another side and two things, right? And so, and that is much more, uh, a much more accurate way of describing the current world and the, the world that young people are currently navigating and will necessarily need to both navigate and build as adults. And so that kind of complexity, how do we, how do we acknowledge it? How do we not ignore it and just pretend like we're just going to keep, you know, we know that A leads to B and B leads to C um, when we know in real life that that's often not the case. Uh, so yeah, it, and I think it's, it's an important, um, an important piece, you, you know, your note on, on collaborative decision-making. I think it is much clearer now that we are uh, interdependent in ways that maybe we hadn't thought before, which means that we, if we're all part of this world or city or school, then all of our, all of our values and all of our opinions should contribute, um, including young people. And so anyway, there's a lot, there's a whole direction we can go there. <laughs> No, it's great. And, and that's that I think that's the um, why tools like EdSpace um, provide that space and that context for people to come together and sort of uh, share their expertise, share their knowledge and collaboratively, you know, make meaning and make sense of all these complex things. And there that's one of the encouraging things. You know, there, there's a lot to, you know, complain about when it comes to the Internet. But one of the powerful things about it is it is busting down those walls and those barriers. So instead, of, you're, you're not geographically locked to the people you know, in your school. Um, you can connect with people all over the world and get all, si all sorts and types of different insight. Um, so the more places like that that exist, especially curated spaces, I think the better off that we'll be able to, to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's, it is another reason why we built um, EdSpace the way that we did. We are not providing specific content. So uh, you know, it mm -hmm. isn't the case that we are saying we are the experts or even that we have 
a stable of experts to tell you exactly what is right and what is wrong. What we're trying to create, uh, what we have created is a place where teachers can begin to determine the conversations, determine the things that they need and they want um, because it is a complex world. It isn't the case that if I tell you to go left today that you should go left tomorrow, but instead teachers actually on the ground doing the work, being able to share what's of interest to them where they think the profession or a lesson or uh, their school should go we want to be able to create the space where those kinds of voices, those kinds of collisions can take place and on an ongoing basis so that it isn't just, you know, it's not a one size fits all and it's not a one time fits all kind of situation. It is, you know, it's anytime, anywhere. And that's really the hope. That's awesome. I can't wait to check it out a little bit more. So if people wanted to learn a little bit more about your work and about Edspace, uh, where would you recommend they go? For sure. So on the internet, you can go to edspace.live. Uh, for those who are familiar with the internet, that's the place to go. Um, edspace.live is the website. You can learn more about Edspace and you can sign up for free to jump into the platform. Uh, it's also at Edspace Live on Twitter. Uh, and then for me, uh, you can find me on Twitter at MJCraw uh, and my email is michael at edspace.live and that's the best way to do it. Super. Cool, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you very thanks. much for being here. Yeah, thanks for the great conversation. Uh, and I appreciate all that y'all do. And I'm looking forward to your book whenever that thing's coming out. <laughs> yes. March. Thanks. Great. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us understand our world. If you like this podcast, feel free to like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform. If you want to learn more or get involved, check out our website at edtosavetheworld.com and join our Facebook group, Learning the Transverse. <laughs>